Grab your Bible, turn with me to Daniel chapter five, and we'll get started. Several years back in Chicago, a guy got a, one of those uh, speeding tickets in the mail, you know, the photo ticket. And uh, he got the envelope and it was all computer generated and there was a picture of him driving through an intersection at a higher speed than he should have been going. Um, and he thought that was funny. They sent him a picture of himself and he thought, I'm gonna do something a little different. And he, and he took the money that he owed in, in dollars and laid it out on the table and took a picture of the money and sent that back. <laughs> and the, um, <laughs> I thought it was interesting because the, the city police there kind of decided to play along. And so they sent him a week later another note with the, the same ticket in there, but this time they sent, instead of a picture of himself, they sent a picture of handcuffs. <laughs> and, uh, and then the police said, your move. <laughs> I like that, that was, that's good. Um, you know, the, the thing is, have you, ever, have you ever gone through those intersections and you see the flash of the light, you know, and you're like, oh, was that me? Well, you know, what was I doing? And, was I, and I, fortunately, I've never received one of those. But, uh, but man, I've been through the, the, the flash of light several times. I'm like, man, was, was I going too fast? And it's funny, have you ever, maybe you're like me, who I, I do tend to drive faster than I should. I, I, I love driving. I think driving's fun. And, um, uh, but but uh, every time you see a police officer, you're like, oh, you know, driving down the road all, you know, um, saintly uh, and stuff. Uh, it's just, it just shows you how guilty you are, you know? I was telling the folks upstairs just a minute ago, I was like, uh, yeah, if I get pulled over, uh, I'm just gonna say, man, you know, you don't even know how bad it is. Just, you, you know, the ticket, whatever you give me, I deserve it. Because uh, I really do. I, I, I deserve whatever I get. Uh, and I confess that that's, that is one of my weaknesses. Um, but, but at the same time, it just shows how guilty you are and how guilty we are. You know, just we, we drive around with a guilty conscience, most of us. Some of you I know are saintly drivers and you're the ones that irritate us. Um, uh, uh, and that's great, good for you. <laughs> but, but the truth is, um, and this is where it gets very, very sobering, God sees it all. You know, everything is naked and open before him with whom we have to do, the book of Hebrews says, and the Lord sees it all. And, and um, man, when I kind of measure and think about my life and think, oh Lord, what happens, you know, when you die? Will you stand before the Lord? The answer is yes. Uh, the question is where and when and all that, uh, because there's different scenarios that are come, gonna come down when your time is up. And one of the themes we've been seeing is the Lord does say to certain people, to different nations, and ultimately even to the world, the Lord's gonna say, time's up. Have you thought about that? When's the Lord gonna say that? The Bible declares it is appointed once for a man to die. And as it turns out, there's an appointment with death that we all have, and the question is, when will that be? And we never really know. But when that happens, as it turns out, we'll, we'll stand before the Lord. And what will he say to you and, and, and what, what's the response? And, and, and there's all kinds of talk about, well, well, if I, hopefully my good will outweigh my bad, or you know, the Lord will, maybe I'll get to heaven because you know, I know God is love, and if he's love, he'll let me in. And, and we have all these views about heaven and how some people say, oh, it's not even, none of that's gonna happen. Uh, when you die, you just cease to exist. Well, that's a gamble that you better be right on. Because if what the Bible says is true, the truth is that you, you kind of go north or south. That's a nice way of saying, heaven or hell. That's what the Bible says. There's not a in-between place. There's not, you know, uh, some of the stuff that people like to talk about, you know, that you'll go to hell, but you get to get out of hell for free, like it's a get out of jail free card, a monopoly or something. None of that's true. The Bible says hell is eternal and it's a place of torment and weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. And it's a place you and I, we don't want to go. And the Bible talks more about hell than it talks about heaven. So you kind of think, man, this, that's kind of brutal. But the good news is um, the Lord provides the way to make sure that you can know when the Lord says time's up, that that time's up is actually a blessing and not a bummer. But the sad thing is because of the stubbornness of certain people, when the, the, the time is up, it's gonna be the worst thing they ever did here. We have such a character here in our story of Daniel chapter five. Um, when he should have, been dialed in and he had everything going for him and he should have been a, like a heavyweight spiritually. He should have had some, you know, some value and substance in his life. But when his time was up, he had nothing. 
God forbid that any of us are like this character. The guy is named Belshazzar. Now, don't be confused. Daniel was given the name Belteshazzar uh, from the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. Um, Belteshazzar was Daniel's Babylonian name, but Belshazzar was the name of the king um, during this story. Now, in Daniel chapters one through four, we had King Nebuchadnezzar. He was the guy, um, and for you that know your history, it's Nebuchadnezzar II. Um, and, and, and that's where Daniel chapter one through four starts, talking about Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was a powerful and great king, brought Babylon to its peak of glory. Um, that, that was the Nebuchadnezzar. And by the way, um, there's a lot, even outside of the Bible, written of Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, there's a, there's a stone that, that is um, in the British Museum. Uh, it's called the Babel Stone. You can go see this. They unearthed this in an archeological dig way a long time ago, uh, but it comes from 605 to 562 BC. And this is an inscription on stone of all of Nebuchadnezzar II's achievements. Uh, it's like when you hear a president talk about, we've done this and we've you know, lowered taxes and we helped the military and we did this and this. This is like the list that Nebuchadnezzar got for his 42 years of, pardon me, 43 years of reigning as king in Babylon. So it's kind of an amazing thing that even outside of the Bible, we have all this detail about what Nebuchadnezzar did. But he died in 562. And then there was a, a lot of drama that happened that the Bible doesn't talk about. Daniel is in Babylon when all this drama happens, but let's get you uh, historically up to where Belshazzar becomes the king, because this is, I think, important to the story. Nebuchadnezzar was seceded when he died by his son, whose name was Evil Merodach. Uh, Evil Merodach, uh, it sounds like a, you know, uh, Marvel Comics uh, character, uh, Evil Merodach. <laughs> anyway, uh, that, that's Evil Merodach. Now, Evil Merodach, uh, he ruled for two years. Uh, and we read about him, by the way, in 2 Kings chapter 25 and Jeremiah 52. Um, we read about Evil Merodach, who is the son of, um, of Nebuchadnezzar. This is a, a, there's a lot of history written about Evil Merodach. And this is a 17th century portlet, portrait that somebody tried to draw of, of Evil Merodach on the left there. And the history goes, the guy on the right, his name is uh, Neregalosar. Um, and he uh, was the, the guy who uh, uh, followed evil Merodach. He was murdered um, uh, by the guy, on the, the guy on the left was murdered by the guy on the right. Uh, the guy on the right, uh, 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 Neregalosar, he, uh, he was Nebuchadnezzar's son-in-law which means uh, evil Merodach's own brother-in-law uh, murdered him. That's, that's the way that happened. So then you got uh, uh, Galasar ruling and reigning for four years, 560 uh, to 560, uh, pardon me, 560 to 556 um, AD. Um, and then his son, uh, after he died, his son Labashi Marduk, um, uh, who ruled for two months, <laughs> Uh, May and June of 556. And then he was assassinated. So this is a lot of drama. That's the point I'm making is kings were coming and being murdered and all that. But um, Labashi Marduk lasted for two months and was murdered by a guy named Nabonidus. Nabonidus. Um, now Nabonidus reigned for 17 years and he reigned as king in Babylon um, over all of Babylon during the time of Daniel chapter five. You say, now wait a minute, Brett. It says in Daniel chapter five, Belshazzar was the king uh, during this time. Well, as it turns out, Belshazzar was a co-regent with this guy, Nabonidus, uh, uh, or some people say uh, Nabonidus, or not Nabonidus, or uh, I say Madonna, Madonna, no. Um, Nabonidus is the guy that uh, uh, is the king, but he's, he's the father of Belshazzar. And, and Nabonidus puts Belshazzar as the king over Babylon, and then he goes and he's trying to bring Babylon to its former glory when Nebuchadnezzar was the king. So Nabonidus went around and was traveling and, and was reigning as the king over Babylon, but he was co-reigning with his son, Belshazzar. So really Belshazzar is kind of technically number two in the kingdom, but he was the acting king in Babylon. And that does play into the story, the reason I go into all this stuff. Daniel's seen all this drama, kings coming and going. If you recall, Nebuchadnezzar made Daniel second in command at one time years earlier. So Daniel's been around, he's seen all these kings come and go. And now we've got this story where, um, you know, Belshazzar is now the king. And, and um, 
while this story in Daniel chapter five happens, Belshazzar decides to bring out this big old party. They're gonna have a big celebration, a big party. Um, but as it turns out, while this party was happening, Babylon was being besieged by the Medes and the Persians. Um, now, um, why was, if, if they're being besieged by the Medes and the Persians, why would Belshazzar be partying down? Like, is he, uh, is he in denial? Well, here's what's going on. Babylon was thought to have been the impenetrable city that no kingdom would ever be able to take over Babylon. It was a huge city. And in Bible times, it had, it, it had such a, a defense. We've talked about this, the wall that went around Babylon. Babylon was as big as Washington, D.C. is today. It was a huge city. In Bible times, cities were tiny. We think of cities like Jericho. Jericho was about the same size as the footprint of our whole church building here. That's how big Jericho was. Nazareth, the city where Jesus grew up, was smaller than half of our sanctuary. Like it's tiny little towns, these cities of Bible. But not so with Babylon. Babylon the Great, massive city, and it had massive walls all the way around. Um, at the peak of the towers, 250 feet high, parts of the wall were. But uh, about halfway down, there was an, the wall, you could race four chariots on the top of this wall. Uh, it was so wide, this huge wall. And then on the outside of that wall, there was, you know the moats of like the Bugs Bunny Roadrunner show, the little river with the crocodiles in the water and stuff? That was like a little tiny thing. The moat around Babylon was the Euphrates River. The Euphrates River went around. It'd be like having the Willamette River going around your city. It was a huge moat and it was deep. Um, and then on the outside of the river, so you got the wall, you got Babylon, the wall, the river, and then you have another wall on the other side of the river. Uh, that's like a normal city wall uh, that was hard enough to penetrate. So once you broke through the first wall, if you could do that, then you'd have to go across the river and then you'd have to go against this, this impenetrable. And so people just said, no way. And the Babylonians boasted at that time in the writings of Nebuchadnezzar and what have you, that if a nation besieged the city, that is surround the city around the walls and made them you know, batten the hatches and close the doors, they could sustain very comfortable living for 20 years, 20 years. Um, you'd have to be in for the long haul if you're besieging Babylon. You're like, okay, soldiers, we're all gonna be here for 20 years and, and then we can finally starve them out. Um, so nobody really ever tried it until the Medes and the Persians, but they had a plan that was a little different than what you might think. So here's Belteshazzar who's there in Babylon thinking, hey, they can't, they can't take us on, we're totally safe. In fact, we're gonna show how comfortable we are with this, we're gonna have a party. It's gonna be a drunken orgy, that's what it is. If you look at the original language of Jan Daniel chapter five, this isn't just a nice little party where they're putting some burgers on the barbie and having a few Budweiser's. This is a, a horrible, sinful, pagan worship party that uh, Belshazzar's having there with the men and the women, all the uppity ups of Babylon, all the ruling class, all the wealthy, they were all in this single palace there. Uh, um, meanwhile, uh, the Medes and the Persians, and, and they were led by a guy named Darius, but also there's a question about who, a guy named Ugaburu. Who? Ugaburu um, was the governor of uh, Gautium, um, who uh, might be Darius, the same guy. Some historians call it, think that they're the same dude. Um, but while Bel Belshazzar was partying down in Babylon, they were strategically coming up with a game plan. What was their plan? They were saying, okay, here's what we're gonna do. Two miles upriver on the Euphrates River, they diverted the water of the Euphrates River. I mean, that's a big chore but they made it so the water was diverted into a whole other direction so that the moat river around Babylon was drained to almost nothing. And then they were sneaking in and they, they were able to walk right up to where the water inlets under the wall. There was, there was actually these little, um, you know, like you'd picture in a James Bond movie, underwater, there was a little archway with bars uh, where the water would flow through. And, you know, typically you'd have to dive really deep, 20, 30 feet, and then you'd have to cut the bars and swim to get to the other side. Um, in those days, fairly impossible. Um, but what they did is they drained the river and they had total access to these bars. The Babylonians forgot about them. They'd been underwater for so long, they forgot about them. And the Medes and the Persians start cutting through the bars and they make, they're making their way in, but Belshazzar's in there busting a move. Partying down, doing his thing there 
in the palace of Babylon. By the way, archeological digs, uh, they've excavated a large banquet hall that was 55 feet wide and 165 feet long that had fancy uh, plastered walls from the time of this story. Uh, they believe such a room would have been sufficient to house the gathering that Belshazzar had that very night. They believe they, they may have found the very room where this happened archeologically in their digs. Um, so so the, there's this big party, the Medes and the Persians are trying to break into the city and, uh, and Belshazzar is worry-free because nobody could break into a city. A, a, a confidence in something that he should never have had confidence in. But all that to say, as they're partying down, something happens that's a little crazy. And this is where the Bible story gets a little, a little wacko, a little crazy. As they're partying down, suddenly a hand appears in the room. A hand that starts writing on the wall. We have that phrase we still use today, the handwriting's on the wall. What does that mean? Well, we get that from this story. This hand started writing on the wall and everybody freaked out. What's that? What is that? And they're freaking out. And, and as it turns out, um, by the way, this, uh, I forgot to keep clicking through. This is Nabonidus. This is um, the king that was uh, over uh, the father of Belshazzar. This is a relief carving in Babylon from that time. Um, but, but Belshazzar sees this hand and everybody freaks out and, and, and it freaks out, um, you know, uh, Belshazzar more than anybody. The Bible says his knees started knocking. And then the Bible has a funny little phrase and it says the joints of his loins were loosed. Uh, what does that mean? Well, I don't know how to say this, but, um, you know, pass the pampers. Um, can you imagine? The, the king sort of, well, he pooped his pants. That's what he did. Can you imagine? He was like, oh, what's the hand? And all of a sudden, what's the smell? Ugh. Send him to the nursery. We need to change him. Um, what a horrible thing. Not very kingly, not very royal, but there he is. That's what the Bible says. Um, and, and so he says, hey, Somebody interpret, what is that writing and what does it mean? And you know, typical fashion, like, like his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar. Um, by the way, in this chapter, the, the Bible calls Nebuchadnezzar Belshazzar's father several times. But you have to understand in the Bible, when they use the word father, grandfather, um, oftentimes the word father is used interchangeably for father, grandfather, or even your ancestors. They'll call him, you know, Abraham, your father. Uh, all the Jews say Abraham was their father. That's the Bible language. Don't be uh, taken back by that. It's not a big deal. It's the way they talked in those days. So over and over says, you know, Belshazzar's father, Nebuchadnezzar says that several times. It's really his, probably his grandfather, maybe even his great grandfather. It depends on your historical view. But um, typical fashion, hey, get all the wise men, the Chaldeans, the soothsayers, the Psychic Friends Network, like whoever they could get, you know, to come and, and interpret whatever this writing is. Get them all together. But nobody could interpret the writing, typical. But along comes the uh, older queen mother. She comes walking into this, this banquet hall and says, uh, you want somebody to interpret this? Back when your, your father, Nebuchadnezzar, um, was, was alive, there was a guy of one of the men's, men of Jerusalem that was able to interpret dreams. You should get him. And so Belshazzar says, well, get this guy. What's his name? His name is Daniel. So they go and get Daniel and they drag him into this banquet hall where this partying has been going on and the handwriting's on the wall. And they, and they say, hey, you're a Jew. And they say this kind of derogatorily, you Jew. Hey, if you can tell us what the meaning of this writing is and what it says, man, I'll make you third ruler of the kingdom and I'll give you a gold chain about your neck and I'll clothe you in scarlet. Man, you'll be royal. Uh, you'll be like a king. And, and, and that was sort of, if you could tell me, Daniel answers and says, listen, you can keep your stupid stuff. Little paraphrase there. Um, you can keep your gold chain and your scarlet clothes and your position. By the way, Daniel had already had second, he had, he had Belshazzar's job at one point. Daniel had already been in charge of Babylonic, second only to Nebuchadnezzar, if you remember. So he's like, yeah, whatever. And forget your gold chain. I love that Daniel, he's not afraid to answer squarely with Belshazzar. Even though Belshazzar could have said, off with your head, Daniel says, I don't need your stuff. But he says, listen, I will interpret what the writing is for you though. And Daniel walks up to where the hand had written on the wall. And Daniel says, here's what it says. 
And here's what it means. Let's take a look. This is where we get to Daniel chapter five, starting in verse 25. Daniel 5, 25. And it says there, and this is Daniel speaking, 525, it says, and this is the writing that was written, meeny, meeny, miny, mo." <laughs> no, sorry, I, that's wrong. Um, actually, verse 26, this is the interpretation of the thing. Or pardon me, verse 25, meeny, meeny, tekel you farsen. Now some of your translations put it, uh, meeny, meeny, tekel perez. It's the same thing. Uh, one has more of a pluralistic, uh, the you farsen one is more plural, don't get hung up on that. But the idea is mini, mini, tekel, perez is, is, is the way to say it. Um, and verse 26, Daniel says, this is the interpretation of the thing. Mine, God hath numbered thy kingdom and finished it. Tekel, thou art weighed in the balances and are found wanting. Perez, thy kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then commanded Belshazzar, and they clothed Daniel with scarlet and put a chain of gold about his neck and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in all the kingdom. In that night was Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, slain. And Darius the Median took the kingdom, being about threescore and two years old. The death, the end, the demise of Belshazzar the king of the Chaldeans, the king of Babylon. What a story. Uh, you know, isn't it funny? Daniel says, I don't want your stuff. And he interprets the, the, the writing and what it means. And then it, it's like Darius, just, or pardon me, Belshazzar just kind of says, yeah, get the ring and get the gold necklace and get the scarlet clothes. And, and man, you're gonna be third ruler. It's like, do you ever get a sense somebody's not listening? Um, this guy's not listening to what Daniel just said. He said, you're toast. Your kingdom is gone. Um, your number is up. And, and, um, and he's like, oh, okay, nice, thank you. Um, Daniel, you're, you're third only to me, you know, uh, or whatever. Like, the guy's just not listening. Sometimes you feel that as a pastor when people are not listening. But, uh, but, but Daniel tells him what God's word is for him, and man, this king. And he dies that very night. He's slain by the Medes and the Persians. Well, what happened? Well, the bars of the intake ducks there under the walls were cut by the Medes and the Persians and they marched right into the city. Now this is where it gets interesting. Historically, we know this. This isn't in the Bible. This is extra biblical literature. But did you know that the Babylonians in the city didn't even know that they'd been conquered by a whole nother people group? How long did it take them to know that the Babylon was no longer and now it's the Medo-Persian empire? Did you know that Babylon the city didn't even know they'd been taken over for one month? How did that happen? How do you conquer a city without the whole city knowing? Well, here's how it happened. When you put the extra biblical literature and you put the Bible and you kind of put them together, you realize what happened. They snuck in that night under the, the, the holes where the river had been drained. They went in, cut the bars, went in. The second wall, cut the bars, went in. And they went into this banquet hall and killed everyone there that was drunk and that was a leader and that was a king and that was in charge of anything. They all were killed right there in that banquet hall. And the rest of the city didn't even know what happened. The rest of the city just went on and after a month they're like, hey man, have you seen King Belshazzar? Like we haven't seen him for a while. And little did they know they'd been taken over by the Medo-Persian empire and Darius was actually there, large and in charge, ruling over Babylon. Did you know, and we'll maybe talk more about this on Wednesday, but Isaiah the prophet predicted this very thing with great exact um, uh, precision uh, and it's so cool. Uh, we'll look at that on Wednesday night, but um, you know, the, you got the, the Medes and the Persian, Darius the Medes, Cyrus the Persian, who was kind of the biggest of them. Um, Cyrus was named by Isaiah the prophet who would take over the Babylonian empire. And he even mentions the cutting of these bars of the, of the walls of Babylon 200 years earlier than it happened. It's like the Lord kind of knows what's gonna happen prophetically. But that's another thing. We'll, we'll look at that uh, Wednesday night, that amazing prophecy of Isaiah of this very night that happened. But what do you do with this? When you read the story of Belshazzar and Daniel's interpretation of this and the, the whole thing, what do we learn from that? Well, there's, there's much to learn. Remember, the Old Testament is a picture book picturing New Testament truths. 
And, and this, this story presents something to us that I think is one of the most important questions that any person can really face. When your time is up, what's gonna happen? Let's take a look at these writings on the wall. Mene, mene, tekel yufarsin. First of all, number one, if you're jotting down notes, mene. Mene, it's a word that um, is a single, uh, uh, it's actually a word that's Aramaic, um, but it's, it's a word that they didn't really understand, whether it was the handwriting they didn't understand or why this single word meant what it did. But Daniel interpreted it and he said, um, mine, and, and this is what he said, God has numbered your kingdom and you are finished. Your number is up. That's what he's telling Belshazzar. God is saying, time's up. And he's saying this to Belshazzar. One of the things we've been seeing as we've talked about is the time's up part of the, of the Bible. God has time where he says, the spirit of God will not always strive with man. And we even talked about this last week. You know, even the, the end of the world is gonna be a time's up moment where the Lord says, okay, that's it. And the rapture of the church will happen and the pouring out of God's wrath upon a Christ-rejecting sinful world. There's gonna come a time globally, globally where the Lord says, time's up. Man, I hope you're ready for that. But it's the same preparation to be ready for that than also whenever the Lord says, time's up for you. If, if you, you know, kick the bucket today, when, when your time is up, is that gonna be a good thing or a bad thing? You see, as a Christian, when I think about that day, the Lord says, your appointment with death, Brett, it's today. As a Christian, I get to say, awesome. It's about time. Thank you, Lord. This life on this earth, it's not easy, but heaven's gonna be glorious and you're gonna wipe away all the tears. There'll be no more sorrow, no more pain, no more suffering. Man, bring it on, Lord. And that's why the Bible says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. If you're a believer and, and a follower of Jesus, man, when the Lord says time's up, that's the best day of your life. But as a non-believer, like Belshazzar, it's gonna be a scary, horrific event. The Lord says to Belshazzar, time's up. Your number is up. Um, in, uh, in his later years, Moses prayed. In fact, it's recorded as a Psalm of Moses in the book of Psalms. There in Psalm chapter 90, verse 12, um, Moses said, so teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. The wise person knows that their days are limited and that you live in a, with, a, with a wise mentality and thinking about what's gonna happen after you die. A lot of people don't think that. They just wanna put it off and say, I'm not gonna die. Uh, I don't wanna think about death. Um, I just wanna party. That's what Belshazzar says. Who cares? I'm just gonna party and I'm not gonna die. So teach us. The clock is ticking for each one of us. And it's amazing how life goes by and how we waste so much time doing stuff that doesn't matter. Thinking about stuff that doesn't matter. Um, you know, how would you like to spend two years of your life making phone calls to people who aren't home? You say, I would never do that. Well, did you know the average person uh, in America who reaches the average age, which is, I think, what is it, 76.4 years old, you live average. The average person will spend two years of their life calling people on their phone that are not home or not answering. Two years. Um, there's a bunch of studies that have done. Six months you'll spend sitting at stoplights Eight months of your life, you'll be opening junk mail. One year of your life, you'll be looking for misplaced items. And according to the study, uh, 6,000 people uh, were done on this, you'll spend four years of your uh, life doing housework, five years of your life waiting in line. Five years. Uh, six years of your life, you'll spend eating. I think that's inaccurate. Um, <laughs> They talked to the wrong group of people if you ask me on that one. Um, but these kind of statistics remind us uh, you know, of our time and our use of time and evaluating your life because the Bible's right. Life is but a vapor. It goes by so fast. And before long, suddenly, you know, you're a young person then all of a sudden you're an older person. You're like, well, how did that happen? And, and, and then when you're at the sunset of your life, you have to look back and say, did I use my life wisely? And I'm, am I prepared to meet my maker? The Bible says prepare to meet your maker because it's gonna happen. 10 out of every 10 people die. The statistics are alarming. <laughs> um, it's gonna happen. 
But it so happens that Belshazzar thinks that he's living large. He's a young, new king. He's powerful. He's wealthy. He's got women, wine, partying. Everything's going for him. And suddenly, bam, he's, he's going to be slain this very night. And the Lord just says, your number is up. So that's the first thing. That's what mine means. Your number is up. And, and by the way, all of us have an appointment with death. The second word on our study here is the word tekel. And you might think of the word shekel. Uh, they are related, by the way. The word shekel and tekel are related in the sense of a weight of measure for value. You know, you take a scale, and when you'd put your gold or silver or coins or whatever on the scale, you'd find out how much gold and how much was that worth by its counterweight. And you'd take a tekel, which was a unit of measure, and you'd set it on the balance. And, and if it balanced, you'd know, okay, that's, that's like a tekel's worth. That's where this word comes from. But the single word in this context, Daniel says, you've been weighed in the balances. You know, your, your number's up, your life is over, but Daniel says, you've been weighed in the balances and you have been found wanting. Oh, that's the worst thing you could ever imagine. You know, you had your life, you spent your life, and you, you've been weighed to see if your life was worth anything, and it isn't. You're a lightweight. When you should have been a heavyweight, you're a lightweight, and you're a weakling. You're, you're spiritually lacking. It reminds me of um, this airport that I went to once. Uh, it was called Lorne Aurora Airport. I bought some pictures of this place where I went a few years back. Um, but that little white building on the left is the Lorne Aurora Airport on Pentecost Island in Vanuatu, out in the South Pacific, these little islands where there used to be cannibals like 40 years ago. Um, and um, and uh, it's where they do that, jumping off the bamboo towers and hit their heads on the ground with a vine tied to their leg. That's where they do that, this island. But the funny thing is, this airport, in the landing strip, there's grass. They mow it once a month, and it's pretty rough landing, but it's kind of, kind of you know, kind of fun. But you walk into this little concrete airport, and there's no, con there's no desk, there's no luggage conveyor, there's no ticketing or anything like that. All they have in the center of that little concrete building at this airport is a scale, a big scale. And they basically tell you, step right up, stand on the scale, and that's how much we'll charge you for your next flight. That's all they have in this airport. They weigh you and charge you per pound. <laughs> now, you gotta understand, all these Vanuatu people, they're like little tiny people, you know? I come walking up to the airport, and they're like, ho, 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 ho. <laughs> it's like, their eyes light up, like, ka-ching, you know, the money. It's like, wow, step right up. You know, I watch everybody paying their little $5, $10. I'm like, $500, like, uh, okay, real funny. Um, but, uh, but as it turns out, <laughs> did you know, uh, not fortunately uh, concerning your weight, your body weight, but your spiritual weight is gonna be measured. This is what happens. Are you a heavyweight spiritually or are you a lightweight? When you should have been hefty and strong, you're actually a little, a little light. That's what happens. Belshazzar says, you've been, you know, Daniel says to Belshazzar, you've been weighed in the balances and you've been found a lightweight when you should have been a heavyweight. That's the idea that was given here. And, uh, and, and as it turns out, this is something the whole Bible teaches. In fact, Luke 12, 48, Jesus said this, for who, unto whomsoever much is given, much shall be required. And, and think about yourself for a minute. Um, have you been given much? You say, well, I haven't been given much. Well, like relative to the rest of the world, what have we been given? You know, you and I have access to so much. We have access to Bibles. Like there's places in the world you can't get a hold of a Bible. And, and I think there's gonna be a lot of people in heaven that they were not given much, and so much isn't gonna be required. But some of us who've been given, some of us have 10 Bibles on our shelf at home, different translations. Some of us have Logos Bible software where you can go on your computer and look up all the Greek and Hebrew and, and Aramaic and you can, you can hear all the commentaries and what you know, old writers and authors and pastors said for years before. Like we have no excuse. We've been given so much access to information, to truth, uh, to wealth and prosperity. Even as Belshazzar should have been a heavyweight because he had so much at his disposal as a king. He lived like a king, but he'd been weighed in the balance and he was found a lightweight. You know, what would God declare of you if you were to meet your maker today? Would he weigh you in the scale of life and say, oh man, you're, you're lacking. You see, here's the problem. There's been a bit of a misnomer that 
and, and I think some of your well-meaning grandmas and people told you, hey, listen, if your good outweighs your bad, when you get to heaven, if your good outweighs your bad, you'll make it into heaven. And that's been a narrative that some people kind of believe, but that is so false. That's not what the Bible teaches at all. The Bible teaches that your bad far exceeds the weight of your good. And it's not even close. Um, Paul talks about this in Romans. He says, oh, you know, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no one righteous, not even one person, but, but you know, even our best works are like filthy rags, the Bible says. And, and this is not just being hyperbolic. It's, it's actually true that we as people are just bad. It's one of the problems with modern day secular humanism, you know, is they basically, man is basically good. It's all good. Um, it works really great until you actually watch humanity and things like 9-11 that we're remembering 20 years later. And you think, man, the people are kind of basically bad. And the Bible teaches this. And, and, and the Bible says the wages of sin is death, eternal death and hell. That's what we're talking about. So when you stand before God, it's important that you wonder what happens when my life is weighed on the scale? Like, you know, Belshazzar, you've been weighed in the balances, chink, and you've been found wanting. What would happen with you? Well, as it turns out, this is where um, being a Christian is the whole thing. Why would you wanna become a Christian? So that you're wealthy, healthy, and wise? No, it's to keep you out of the fires of hell. Because um, that's where everybody's headed. That's the natural flow of things. But the, the, the Bible teaches, in fact, the, Bible, the whole Bible's about this. Uh, the Bible starts with God creating heavens and the earth and humanity, and 10 seconds later, humanity blows everything and sins. And we, we ruin our, our possibility for eternal life because of sin. Adam and Eve did that, and we would have too. All of humanity does that with sin. The rest of the Bible is about God's plan to reconcile humanity back to himself so that people can be saved and go to heaven. And that's what the whole Bible's about. And it culminates there when Jesus, who's God, who came in the flesh, died on the cross for our sins. Well, that's gonna tip the scale back in the right direction. We'll talk about that in a second. But what a sad tragedy that there are people like Belshazzar who've been given so much, but because they've rejected Christ and have not made their life worthwhile and looked to the Lord, they ended up, like Belshazzar, weighed in the balance and have been found wanting. And that brings us to the, the last part of this, Perez. What's that word mean? Well, Daniel says, you know, Perez, thy kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And as it turns out, October 12th, we know the very date, October 12th, 539 BC is when uh, Belshazzar lost Babylon and the Medo-Persian empire stepped in. And, and all of his stuff, all of his kingdom was divided among the Medes and the Persians. The idea is it wasn't divided into two as much. It, all this stuff was just divided to other people. Um, it's so funny how we materialistically live for this life, for our house and our car, and we think that it makes up the substance of who we are. But when you die, all of that's peeled off, and it's just kind of back to just you. It's, it's not gonna you know, say, well, you drove a fancy car, or you lived in a really nice house. None of that will matter when you stand before the Lord with the weight and the scale of balances. Your kingdom is divided and given to Medes and Persians. You're gonna have nothing, uh, it's all gone. Um, where will your stuff be, your house, your car, when you die? Uh, uh, left. I've never seen the U-Haul uh, at any funeral I've ever done. There's never been a U-Haul attached to the hearse. Did you know Jesus spoke about this? In Luke's gospel, why don't you turn there? Keep your finger here in Daniel and go with me to Luke chapter 12. In Luke 12, Jesus addresses, it's almost like he's talking into the Belshazzar kind of situation. Luke chapter 12, starting there in verse 15, Jesus makes a statement of truth and then he tells a parable sort of reinforcing that truth. What's the statement of truth? It's right here in Luke 12, 15. It says, and Jesus said unto them, take heed, that means listen up, and beware of covetousness, wanting all the other people's stuff. For a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesses. What a powerful truth that is. A man's life or a woman's life um, is not consisting or made up of 
uh, the abundance of the things which he or she possesses. That's the problem. We, we, we don't believe that as American, you know, uh, red-blooded patriots. We're like, uh, yeah, the stuff you have does kind of make up who you are. Jesus said, no. And then he tells this parable, verse 16. He spake a parable unto them saying, the ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself saying, what shall I do? Because I have no room where to bestow all my fruits. In other words, man, I got so much stuff that I, I need to build something bigger. So he said, this, this will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thy knees, eat, drink, and be merry. That's kind of the Belshazzar vibe. But, verse 20, God said unto him, thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? You know, the barns that he built. Who's gonna get them when your soul is required of you? You're gonna die. So, verse 21, so is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not, listen, rich toward God. There's a richness in this world and there's a wealth that has to do with God. That's where Belshazzar was tactically uh, ignorant. He had stored up power and a kingdom and he was a king of, of Babylon, but he was not rich toward God. He was in total poverty. The church of Laodicea thought they were wealthy, but the Lord says to them in Revelation, uh, you're a poor, blind, naked church. The church was literally in poverty, Smyrna, the Lord says, you think you're, you're poor and in poverty, but you're actually rich. There's this great irony when we stand before the Lord. The rich are gonna be poor, the poor are gonna be rich. The first shall be last, the last shall be first. The one that wants to be great in the kingdom must become servant of all. Like the irony here is really amazing. But in this lifetime, we get all caught up in the material possessions and what we have and us eating and drinking and being merry, having fun and all this stuff when really we're lightweight spiritually, the scales still kink. And when we stand before God, that's what's gonna matter. Belshazzar had no consideration of this and thus he makes a foolish, foolish life for himself. Psalm 39 verse six. Surely every man walketh in a vain show. Surely they are disquieted in vain. He heapeth up riches and knoweth not who shall gather them. Like this is the plight of the person who hasn't thought about eternity and they're not rich toward God. You can't take it with you, but you can send it ahead of you. What you do with this life and the, the, the value and the weightiness. But I gotta tell you, the scale that we're talking about here that Belshazzar finds himself on and finds himself lacking, wanting, a lightweight, that same scale, how does the scale get tipped back in your favor? Well, the answer is kind of profound. Here it is. When you stand before God as a Christian who believes in Jesus, what, what happens? Your scale, your good outweighs your bad. No, kink, your good is a light thing. Nothing good you ever did. Nobody ever got saved by their own good deeds. That's the situation. But what a glorious thing that God puts on my side of the scale the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's what happens. As a believer in Jesus, an acceptor of the work of the cross, my scale, when, when I die and stand before God, your scale as a Christian, Christ puts his righteousness on there and suddenly, bink, guess what? The scale goes back to where you are saved. That totally outweighs all the sin that you've ever done, that I've ever committed, all the sin that I've loaded on the balances and all my weakness and all that. The Lord says, guess what? I'm gonna trump that with my righteousness. And he puts it on the scale and case dismissed. You get a brand new start and you have eternal life in heaven. That's the only way you're gonna pass the scale test. The righteousness of Jesus Christ. By the way, that's New Testament. It's a doctrine called imputed righteousness. Paul talks all about that that unless you have his righteousness put on your scale, you're gonna come up short just like Belshazzar. And the only way you have his righteousness put on your scale is to do what the Bible calls uh, you know, salvation. It's funny how um, we, we have these words that mean stuff and they change meaning over centuries. The original thing we talked about on Wednesday night, the church was originally called the way 
But then the people that didn't like the, the, the way, the people of the way that followed Jesus, they started making fun of them by calling them Christians. You're a Christian. It was an insult. Little Christ running around. That's what they were calling them. But the church were like, they're like, we like that. Call us Christian all you want. That's what we want to be. We want to be just like Christ. And so the name stuck and the church embraced it. Yeah, we're Christians. And then as the years went by, you had your Byzantine Christians and your Roman Catholic Christians and you had, you know, uh, Christian scientists and Christian this and that. And, uh, and, and the word Christian can mean anything. And I'm, I'm bummed because a lot of people, they don't really know what a, a, a Christian really is. Biblically, if you go all the way back to the Bible and forget all the stuff that people say, here's what you need to know. A true Christian or a person following Jesus or someone who's born again. Jesus called it that, by the way. He said, you must be born again. Jesus called it that when he talked to Nick at night. Nickelodeon, no, Nick, Nicodemus um, at night. Uh, remember Jesus said, are you a teacher? You don't know this, that you're supposed to be born again? What, do I climb in my mother's womb and be born a second time? And Jesus said, oh. <laughs> the, idea is, the idea is you were born in sin. You and I, because we're people, kink, your scale is off from the moment you were born. But Jesus said, you need to be born again, and that is to be born into eternal life. How does that happen? How do you become a Christian? It's not by going to church. It's not by being a Trump supporter. It's not by um, you know, having a fake smile and say, Jesus is the way. It's not, um, it's not by acting like a weirdo or giving your tithes and offerings to a church. None of that is what a Christian is, even though that's what some people think a Christian is. A Christian is simply this, a person who knows their scale is off and they recognize that they're sinful and sinners. Um, the word is repentance. You repent. You acknowledge your sin before God and you acknowledge that you have blown it with your life. Repentance, by the way, does not mean perfection. Some people try to say, if you repent, you're never gonna sin again. My question there is, who really gets to go to heaven then? The answer, no one, if that's what repentance means. Repentance means to change your mind and go about face and say, Lord, I'm a sinner and acknowledge your sin before God. That's repentance. And then, you've got this problem of sin, how do you deal with it? The, the person who becomes a Christian is this, I accept Jesus' work on the cross as a substitution for me, so that when my scale is weighed, his righteousness is put on the scale. How did that work out? My sin deserved death and hell. Jesus, who's God becoming a man, lives among us, dies on the cross and says, if you destroy this body three days later, I'll raise it up from the grave. And Jesus did that, one of the most provable historical facts in all history. The world was turned upside down. Our dating system was changed. Christianity uh, you know, spread like wildfire from the time this carpenter from Galilee died on a cross in, in Jerusalem. What, why would that change the world? It's because Jesus did exactly what he said he would do. And he died on the cross for the sins of the world. And anyone, now this is where it gets profoundly easy. This is the person, anyone, the, the whosoever of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. This is the easy part. Not easy for him, he did all the work. Easy for us. So Romans 10 verse nine and 10 says that if you as a doomed sinner headed for hell, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, the Lord Jesus Christ, that God raised him up from the dead. It says, you will be saved. That's where the scale goes, tink. And it's so simple. It's so profound. It's so powerful. But that's why Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. What is finished? The work of salvation. I'm so thankful that I, I don't have to be Belshazzar. When God says, time's up, Brett, um, he's also gonna say, now enter in, thou good and faithful servant. And I know I'm gonna be like, Lord, are you sure you forgot all my sins? Because got a few, I uh, got a few things I did. Even today on the way to church, I was going 77 miles per hour. <laughs> Probably past some of the Athey Creekers on the way. <laughs> um, but the Lord says, I, I remember your sins no more. I'm thankful for that. And it's there for the taking. I hope you're all saved. Um, I hope you're not Belshazzar partying down, eating, drinking and being merry, thinking, oh, this is all great and stuff. But, but meanwhile, you're gonna be weighed in some balances and that's not a time to mess around. Oh Lord, give us ears to hear. Whether you're here today or watching online, listen to what the Lord would say. Be saved, accept Christ 
and go to heaven. That's a better way to go. Let's pray together. If you would, just as Christians, be in an attitude of prayer and pray, pray right now. This is the most important part of the service. Um, but with that attitude of prayer, I wonder if there might be some of you who are watching online or maybe you're here in the, the sanctuary and you've yet to confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. You've never really been saved. You, you, you must be born again. The Bible says that, Jesus taught that. And, and uh, you never know when you're gonna go. Belshazzar thought he had years to go, but not so. Um, the answer is to be ready and to be saved. God loved you so much that he provides the way, the truth, and the life through Jesus Christ. The question is, are you gonna receive it or are you gonna deny it? And maybe you've not received Christ because you didn't like other Christians. Can I just tell you how stupid that is? Um, that's like saying, you know what? I'm not gonna go get cancer treatment at the hospital because I don't really like some of the other people who've had cancer. You say, wait a minute. The other people have nothing to do with it. It's getting the right treatment that's important. And so the church is filled with a bunch of weird people like me. Don't let that stop you. But what you need to do is realize you gotta be saved. You gotta go to the Lord and accept the work of the cross. And it doesn't have anything to do with other Christians or other people. It's amazing that the people will let the glorious salvation that God offers be thwarted by being bitter because you don't like someone or some church or some you know, thing that happened or whatever, when that has nothing to do with it. You're the one who's gonna answer, not other people. You're the one who's gonna answer before God someday. And you need Jesus to tip the scale. You need that. The way you get that is a confession with the mouth, believing in the heart. I'd like to do that. I'd like to provide you that opportunity today. I won't embarrass you or make you stand up or do anything weird, but right where you are, if you're saying, Brad, I need that, I wanna accept Christ, would you acknowledge that and say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pray this prayer of confession, which I'm gonna pray this in just a minute. Um, but if that's you and you're saying, Brad, I need that, would you acknowledge that? Be bold and acknowledge before the Lord and, and to me, just so I can know if you're there. Um, uh, if you wanna accept Christ, would you acknowledge that by looking up and give me a quick wave and let me acknowledge you? Just right now, do that. Anybody who wants that, I'll acknowledge that. That's so cool, good. You back there, good. You right there, awesome, good. Way in the back, I see you, that's good. You over here, yes. And you, good. Good, good. Back over here. Good. Awesome. I'm gonna pray this prayer of confession. If you're online watching, um, man, you can pray this right along with us and the Lord will honor that. Um, it's nothing we do to deserve it or earn it. That's where people get really messed up. It's what he did that gives this weight so let's pray this prayer of confession. I'm gonna follow really what Romans 10, nine and 10 says. If you confess with your mouth, believe in your heart, the Lord Jesus and that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's a promise of the word and you can bank on it. Um, and, and, and as we confess this, the, the sin that's in your life, the Lord says, I'm gonna put it as far as the east is from the west and I'm gonna remember your sins no more. <laughs> I love that, that he forgives and forgets. So let's pray this prayer of confession. I'm gonna ask the whole church to pray this out loud. Let's pray together. Dear Father in heaven, I believe in your son, Jesus. I believe that he died on the cross for my sins and that he rose up from the grave and that I'm forgiven. Help me to walk with you. Thank you for saving me. In the name of Jesus Christ, Jesus. 